are continuing our series through the book of Mark. It's hard to believe we've only got two weeks left. We've been going through the gospel of Mark for 14 weeks now. This is week number 15, and we've got one more week tomorrow, and then school starts back. Isn't that crazy? School starts back after that. The teachers are telling me to shh and be quiet. So, and then we'll be starting a new series after Labor Day. Uh, our, our next sermon series we're going to be uh, going uh, through is entitled, What is Church? So we're going to be talking about what church is. Why do we do the things that we do? We'll be talking about what, things like, why do we sing? Uh, why do we preach from the Bible? Uh, what are pastors for and what do they do? All those questions, things like that. Things that a lot of times we might not think about. And we're going to be discussing those topics, but this morning... We're going to be in, um, I think, maybe the most important passage in the Bible. Um, today, we're looking at a passage that describes the day that blackness covered the earth. The light of the world was enveloped in darkness. Today, we're in Mark chapter 15, and we're looking at the crucifixion. If you don't have a Bible, uh, by the way, I wanted to let you know that there are Bibles on the tables in front of you, the blue or white Bibles, and if you don't own one, you are free to take that home with you. It's our gift to you, so feel free to take one of those Bibles if you need one. This might be the most sacred and most amazing passage in, in the entire Bible, because what we're going to see is that our eternities, our souls, hang in the balance of what happened in Mark chapter 15. Every single word in this book points forward to the event that we are about to read today. All of the Old Testament points forward to what's going to happen here in Mark chapter 15. I, wanna, I wanted to say something before I started, uh, give you a quick um, word about preaching and, and talk real quick about preaching and why uh, we do this. There's a, a verse in James chapter 3, verse 1, and uh, James writes, he says, Not many of you should become teachers, knowing that we will be judged with greater strictness. And what he meant by that is that when we teach the Word of God, not only are we responsible for ourselves, but I'm also responsible for you, okay? I'm going to give an account to God one day for how faithfully I taught the Bible to you and to everybody else who will ever hear me teach the Bible. Did I proclaim the whole counsel of God? Did I leave something out or did I, you know, do something to make myself look better? Or did I just tell you the truth? So I want to say that because I want you to know that I take what I do very seriously. I take preaching the Word of God very seriously. Because I know that the Word of God has the power to save your souls. It's living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And today could be the day that could change the rest of your life if you're here today. Today could be the day that you are never the same again. You could walk out of this place unchanged. Not because of me. Not because of our worship. Not because of Fellowship Oshawa. Because of God. Because of Jesus Christ. So my plea with you this morning is this. Don't treat God's Word as common. You may have heard the story about the crucifixion before, but I want you to ask God right now, like the psalmist did in Psalm chapter 119, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your word. Ask him that to yourself in your heart. God, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your word. 
I want to I tell us where we're going today, so kind of give you a map, okay? So I'm going to uh, give you a road map for where we're heading today. Uh, so what we're going to do first is we're going to look at the scoffers, Jesus' scoffers. We're going to see different sets of scoffers or mockers that are going to ridicule Jesus as he goes to the cross. But we're also going to find that all of us have either been there or we're still there. You are either a scoffer of Jesus right now or you used to be in your past. Then we're going to go from there, we're going to look at the cross, and we're going to see what Jesus did for the scoffers. And we're going to talk about what actually took place at the cross. Why did Jesus have to die? And then lastly, we're going to look at the response to Jesus' death. We're going to see God's response to Jesus' death, and we're going to see a soldier's response to Jesus' death. And there's two different angles I'm kind of taking today, okay? So... Uh, the first angle is some of you here in this room are scoffers, and you're mocking Jesus by the way that you live. But Jesus died for the very people who killed him, who scoffed at him. We're going to see that. Secondly, there's some of you in here who are suffering for Jesus. You're suffering in Jesus' name. And I want you to keep in mind that the book of Mark was written to Christians who were in Rome, and they were being persecuted by the Roman Empire. So this gospel was written to Christians who were enduring intense persecution. And Mark had that in the back of his mind when he wrote this gospel. And here's the truth this morning. I'm going to give you kind of the main point of the message right at the start. Whether you are mocking Jesus or being mocked for Jesus, because Jesus died, you can have life with God forever. Whether you are mocking Jesus or being mocked for Jesus, because Jesus died, you can have life forever forever. So let's go ahead and read the passage. It's going to be Mark 15, 1 to 39. This is the living word of God. And it'll be on the screen behind me as well, by the way, if you don't have a Bible. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For Pilate perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? And they cried out, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, 
and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what he should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come down and take him. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Dear God, I pray that as we talk about this passage, as we talk about your word, that you would come and be in our midst that you would remove distractions, and that we would have an encounter with the God of the universe this morning, and that you would change us. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's take a look at the scoffers first. I said first we are going to take a look at the scoffers. So the first scoffer we see is Pontius Pilate. So Jesus, remember from last week, he had been betrayed by Judas and he had been denied by Jesus, and the Jewish uh, council had taken him, and they had found him guilty of blasphemy. But you see, uh, Israel was under Roman occupation, so they did not have the authority to execute anybody. So they, only Rome had the authority to execute somebody, and Pilate was the Roman governor. So if they wanted to execute Jesus, which they did, they were going to have to convince Pilate that Jesus did something worthy of being executed. Now, the Romans did not care about blasphemy. Pilate did not care about Jewish law. He didn't care about the Old Testament. None of that. So they couldn't try Jesus with blasphemy in Rome. So they had to come up with some different charges to convince Pilate to crucify Jesus. So what did they accuse him of? They accused him of claiming to be the king of Israel, the king of the Jews, which would have been a direct challenge to the rule and reign of Tiberius Caesar, who was Caesar at the time. That was a very serious accusation, okay? And this is the accusation that they bring against Jesus. And we see from this passage that clearly Pilate believed Jesus was innocent. It even says in verse 10 of chapter 15, it says, Pilate perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered Jesus up. 
Now, I want to give you a little bit of information on Pilate. We know from extra-biblical sources like Josephus, historians who wrote about Pilate, uh, that Pilate was a ruthless and temperamental uh, ruler. Uh, he did not like the Jews at all. Uh, in fact, he even got in trouble with Tiberius Caesar uh, because he uh, brought some gold statues into Herod's palace, and he also mixed the blood of some Gentiles with the blood of the sacrifices in the temple, uh, which was extremely upsetting to the Jews. I mean, that was one of the most offensive things you could do. And so he incited a riot, and he got in trouble with Caesar because of that, because Caesar wanted peace. He didn't want, you know, the mob rising up and causing this trouble. And Pilate's job was to just keep everything chill. And Pilate did not do that, and so he had gotten in trouble. So, having, knowing that, it was in Pilate's best interest that he kept things calm. The last thing Pontius Pilate wanted was a mob. The last thing he wanted was for the crowd to turn against him. So he's got a problem on his hands. He's very concerned about this situation. He knows that the crowd is angry and they want to kill Jesus, but he also knows that Jesus is innocent. And he knows it. So we see Pilate start trying to maneuver to get himself out of this situation. The first thing he does is he thinks, well, here's what I'll do. I will release Jesus for the customary Passover pardon. So once every year at Passover, it was customary for Pilate to release one guilty prisoner. And so he says, hey, guys, I haven't released a prisoner for you yet. How, how about I release for you the king of the Jews, this Jesus? And the crowd instead began to clamor for Barabbas, who it was wanted for murder. And so that doesn't work for Pilate. So he goes on to strategy number two. We see in the book of Luke that he actually sends Jesus to Herod. Since Jesus was a Galilean and, and Herod was over Galilee, he says, well, maybe I'll just send him to Herod and Herod will, will handle this and I won't have to do anything with it. So he sends Jesus to Herod. Herod examines Jesus, doesn't find anything wrong with him, and he sends Jesus right back to Pilate. So that doesn't work either. Next, Pilate tries to reason with the crowd, and he tries to talk his way out of it. He, he's, why? What evil has he done? Why should I crucify him? And their chants only grow more intense and louder. Crucify him! Crucify him! And lastly, we see in the book of Matthew his last attempt to absolve himself of guilt is he goes out in front of the crowd, he has a bowl, a dish of water, and he dips his hands in the water, and he washes his hand, and he says, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And he delivers Jesus over to be crucified. See, although the Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent, to stand with Jesus would have been far too costly for Pilate. It would mean losing control, losing power, losing respect. You see, if the mob turned on him and there was another riot, he knew there was a good chance Caesar was going to remove him from power and maybe worse. It would mean drawing the ire of Caesar. And so Pilate chose himself over Jesus. Many, many people do this today. Many of you know that Jesus is innocent. You even say that you believe he was sent by God. Like Pilate, you may even try to speak up for him and find a way to stand with him without giving up the things that you love the most. But to follow him would be too costly. 
To stand with him would be to stand against the crowd, to stand against the tide and currents of culture. See, Jesus beckons you to deny yourself and identify yourself with him, a crucified Savior, while Satan whispers to you, forget him, save yourself. And many people listen to this deceptive advice. Many people try to take the middle road like Pilate. I mean, nobody wants to be seen yelling crucify him about Jesus, but not very many people are willing to stand with him either. To stand for his word would mean dying to yourself. It would mean being mocked with Jesus, being despised by the world like Jesus. Pilate tried everything possible that he could to avoid having to make a decision one way or the other. He tried everything he could to straddle the fence. He wanted to side with the king, but at the same time, he wanted to remain a king. Do you see yourself in Pilate at all? Have you been trying to take the middle ground? In the end, if you're doing that, you're just as guilty as the bloodthirsty crowd crying out, crucify him. You cannot wash your hands clean of this. But that's not the only type of scoffer we see in this story. We also see the soldiers. In verses 16 to 20, Jesus is led away inside the governor's headquarters. They clothe him in a purple cloak and they twist together a crown of thorns and they begin to bow down and mock homage to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews. And they take a cat of nine chails and they begin to whip him. And it was a boring time for the soldiers in the regiment, so it says the whole battalion came together for a little bit of entertainment gathered to have some fun at the expense of a man who claimed to be a king. They beat him, they spit on him, they mocked and taunted him, and they were oblivious to the fact that every blow that they delivered, they were delivering to the face of God himself. It says they scourged Jesus. That word doesn't really do justice to the violence that took place there. Behind me, got a picture of a cat of nine tails, That's a picture of what one of those whips would look like. What they would do is, it was nine leather straps, and they would weave bone and pieces of glass into the leather straps, and they would take the leather strap, and they would again and again across the back and rip it off. Historical accounts of scourging said that by the end of the scourging, bones would be exposed Sometimes the entrails would be pouring out. Don't turn your face away now. This is the costly nature of sin. Many people didn't even survive the scourging, which was a prelude to the crucifixion. As I thought about these soldiers who sat there and whipped Jesus and spit on him and mocked him over again, You know, Jesus, when he got to the cross, he said, Father, forgive them because they don't even know what they're doing. And they didn't know what they were doing. And like the soldiers, there's many people in our culture today who are simply aloof to Jesus. They don't even care. They don't give a second thought to God or to Jesus. They mock him and his messengers by how they live, and they laugh off the idea that there is a God to whom they're ever going to be accountable. Life is merely about pleasure, about getting in fun whenever they can. They jump at the chance to have some fun at the expense of a man who was let in, who claimed to be a king. 
our culture is full of people who don't give a rip about God and they scoff at the idea of needing a Savior. And I know because I talk to them all the time when we go out and we share the gospel. And I know that many of you in this room have been ridiculed by them as well, just like Jesus was. Psalm chapter 36, verse 1 is a good description. It says this, it says, Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. That word transgression means law-breaking. So, so breaking God's law speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. It's, it's in our very nature. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Like the soldiers, the evidence that there is a God to whom they are accountable stares them in the face every single day. Isn't that amazing that they sat there whipping him, mocking him, and God was literally so close that they could touch him. He was right there the whole time. Like the soldiers delivering the blows, many refuse to see that every sin that they commit is another blow to the face of Jesus Christ himself. Yet, notice Jesus' compassion, even towards the soldiers in Luke's account. He says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. There's one more type of scoffer, and it's possibly the worst type of scoffer, and it's the chief priests and the scribes. We see them in verses 29 to 32 as Jesus is hanging on the cross. He was up on a short hill. There would have been a road passing by it, and since it was Passover week, there were many, many people in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's population would swell to over 10 times the normal amount, from 250,000 to 2.5 million. And it says the passerbys begin to come by, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. They were referring to when Jesus had said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And they thought, of course, that he was referring to the actual physical temple, but he was referring to his body. And then the scribes and the Pharisees, they, they say, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. It's amazing that they acknowledged that he saved others, isn't it? These are people who saw him heal the sick, cast out demons, raise the dead, preach with authority, and yet they're totally oblivious to the fact that this is the Son of God. What a testament to their blindness. They rejected Jesus' claims to be the Son of God. They wanted a Messiah who came on their terms, and Jesus did not do that. Jesus was a threat to them. Jesus threatened all the respect and the righteousness that they had worked so hard for. You see, these religious leaders were very careful to keep all the laws, and they, wa they walked around with their robes, and they wore these tassels, and they stuck their noses up, and they believed that they were more holy and righteous than other people because they followed the law of God. And meanwhile, Jesus came telling them, your good deeds are not good enough. And he told them that only those who follow him are true children of God. This Jesus came and he hung out with sinners. And he declared prostitutes who trusted in him to be righteous while condemning them for hypocrisy. They were comfortable with their religion and Jesus upset 
that. John Stott, in his book, The Cross of Christ, he says this. He says, we resent his intrusions into our privacy, just like the Pharisees resented Jesus' intrusions. His demand for our homage, his expectation of our obedience. Why can't he mind his own business, we ask petulantly, and leave us alone? To which he instantly replies that we are his business and that he will never leave us alone. So we too perceive him as a threatening rival who disturbs our peace, upsets our status quo, undermines our authority, and diminishes our self-respect. We too want to get rid of him. You can plug your ears and you can refuse to listen. You can even put Jesus on the cross, but Jesus isn't going anywhere. Can I give you a spoiler alert? Spoiler alert. Jesus is going to rise from the dead in three days. Destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Jesus is king and he's not going anywhere. And he demands your allegiance. So here's the thing. We all fit into one of those categories. Every time you sin, like Pilate, you are choosing to serve, your, to serve yourself instead of standing with Jesus. Every time you sin, like the soldiers, you make a mockery of Jesus' reign and you strike another blow to his heart. Every time you sin, you deny Jesus' claim as king over your life. Just like the religious authorities denied Jesus' claim as the king of Israel. And yet, Jesus died for his enemies. He died for Pilate's sins, for the soldiers' sins, for the chief priests and the scribes' sins. He died for your sins. The price that had to be paid for our sins was terrible, both physically and spiritually, as we take a look at the cross. After enduring a scourging, which alone could have killed Jesus, the execution squad of four Roman soldiers, along with the centurion, led him up to the hill of Golgotha, the place of a skull. The historian Josephus said this about crucifixion. He said, it's the most wretched of all ways of dying. Crucifixion is where we get the English word excruciating. Roman citizens were exempt from crucifixion. It was considered so violent, such torture, that they wouldn't even subject their own citizens to it. Crucifixion was designed to keep the victim alive as long as possible while inflicting the maximum amount of pain and torture. People would typically spend two to three days on the cross before they would finally die suffering. They would drive nails into the wrists of the victim. In between the two bones right here, they would drive nails into the wrists. And then they would put the feet together and they would drive a nail, one single nail through both feet. They would attach them to the cross and the victim would hang there all the weight of their body hanging from the nails in the wrists and the hands. And as they sagged, it would put pressure on the lungs. The pressure would go on the lungs, and to be able to continue to breathe, to draw breath, the victim would have to press up on the nails in his wrists and his hands to bring himself up to <clears throat> draw breath and come down. Excruciating pain shot through the wrists and the feet every time a breath 
was drawn, and eventually, after hours and hours of this, the body would become so weak and lose so much blood that the victim would not be able to draw himself up anymore, and he would suffocate. The magnitude of Jesus' suffering on the cross, and the reason I talk about that is because it reflects the magnitude of our sin. You ever heard the phrase, the punishment fits the crime? The punishment fits the crime. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. Sin earns us death. But what's incredible is that Jesus never sinned. Jesus did not earn death. Jesus reaped the wages of our sin in our place. The punishment indeed fits the crime, but the punishment that Jesus endured was for our crimes, was for our sin. Why did Jesus have to die, though? Why can't God just forgive? Why can't he just forgive and forget? John Stott says this in in the same book. He says, the Bible views human death not as a natural, but as a penal event. What he means by that is that death is not a part of God's original design. Death was introduced as a consequence for sin. He goes on to say, he says, death is an alien intrusion into God's good world, and it is not a part of his original intention for humankind. Our sin does two things. It separates us from God, and it brings about death. God does not want death to be a part of his creation. The reason he sent Jesus was to undo the consequences of sin and of death. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 18 says, Christ died for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So that solves that problem, right? That separation from God. And then Galatians 3.13 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, which is death, by becoming a curse for us. So Jesus took the curse of death in our place to redeem us from the curse of the law. Jesus died to reverse the curse, to undo death. Death is not a part of God's design. It's not his will for your life. He created us to worship him and to be in his presence forever. So to remove death, the reason that Jesus had to die, the wages that we earned, God had to take that death on himself. Somebody had to pay it. The righteous one, Jesus, reversed a pattern of disobedience by submitting to the Father's will all the way to the cross. He never complained. He never tried to run. He never spoke up for himself. He fulfilled the prophecy that was written 700 years earlier in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. I would encourage you to go home this afternoon and read Isaiah chapter 53, which prophesies the events that are taking place here that was written 700 years before Jesus even walked the earth. It will amaze you, and it's really cool. Jesus had to die our death. Jesus had to be judged with our judgment. Jesus had to take the wrath of God that we deserved. 
It's not just the physical nature of the cross that caused great suffering for Jesus, though. It was also the spiritual nature of the cross. While the physical nature of the cross was brutal, the spiritual nature is what caused Jesus to sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before. It's what caused him to plead with the Father, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. We see in verse 33 and 34, I think the most tortuous part of what Jesus endured. Look at verse 33 and 34. It says, When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Listen to me, church. Jesus did not die to protect us from a physical execution on a cross. We know that because some of his very disciples, like Peter, are going to be martyred on a cross. Like Peter's going to get martyred 30 years later on a cross. This passage gives us a glimpse into the horror that Jesus experienced that he died to save us from. Jesus' cry on the cross wasn't because of his physical pain. It was the cry of the Son of God who was experiencing something that he had never experienced in all of eternity. The Father turning his face away. Forsakenness by God. Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City and an author, he puts it like this. He says, this forsakenness, this loss was between the Father and the Son who had loved each other from all eternity. This love was infinitely long, absolutely perfect, and Jesus was losing it. Jesus was experiencing our judgment day. Jesus was forsaken by God so that we would never have to be. This should make you tremble when you think about it. If you have trusted in Jesus, it should make you tremble with thankfulness to God. If any of you know what the Apostles' Creed is, it was a, a, creed, a saying that the church used to say a long time ago over and over again in the early church, and one of the lines says that he descended into hell. This is the passage that it's referring to. See what Jesus endured in your place. If you have not obeyed the gospel, if you are not a follower of Jesus, then the agony of Jesus on the cross due to separation from God, even for mere days, was great. Imagine the agony of the sentence of separation from God for eternity. Jesus experienced this agony knowing he was going to be separated from the Father for three days. Imagine the agony of knowing that there will be separation from God forever. And this is the agony that awaits those who refuse to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 16 and 17, describes the regret that will be experienced by those who trade the gospel of Jesus to keep pleasure in this life. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it 
with bitter tears. Don't be like Esau. Salvation is within your grasp. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So moments after this excruciating cry, Jesus breathes out one more. And he says, it is finished. The salvation plan from the beginning of time is accomplished. The Lamb of God has taken away the sins of the world. The Son of God is dead. But as the preacher S.M. Lockridge, he was an African-American preacher, he preached a famous sermon, and it was entitled, It's Friday, but Sundays are coming. It's Friday, but Sundays are coming. I want to finish up by looking at the response to the cross. I want to look at God's response to the cross first. Check out verse 38 to see how God responds. In verse 38, after Jesus breathes his last, it says, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Let me share with you what the significance of that means. The temple had an inner curtain and an outer curtain. I believe this was referring to the inner curtain that separated the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was where the, cov- the Ark of the Covenant dwelt. That was where the presence of God dwelt within the temple. Only one person, one time of year, could go into the Holies of Holies, and it was the high priest. It represented, that curtain was a reminder that God was holy, and the people had sin, and there was a separation between this holy God and themselves. And when Jesus breathed his last, when the Son of God drew his last breath, when the innocent one took the sins of the world upon himself and cried out, it is finished, that separation between God and man was ripped apart. No more separation. Jesus has made access directly into the presence of God for sinners like you and like me. People who mess up and who fail every single day. People who think to themselves, there's no way God could ever love me. Yes, he can because of what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross. He has made a way for any sinner to come directly into his presence. Jesus died so that Barabbas could go free. Jesus, the innocent one, was condemned so that the condemned could be declared innocent. Jesus refused to plead his own case before Pilate so that he could plead your case before God. Jesus stayed on the cross of God's judgment to keep you off of it. Darkness enveloped the light of the world so that the light of the world could shine in the darkness. Jesus was forsaken by God so that God would never forsake you. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath so that you could drink from the fountain of life. Jesus Christ was crucified so that God in you could be realized. Jesus breathed his last so that you could breathe everlasting. What sinful man did to the Son of God should make us weep for sorrow, but what the Son of God did for sinful man should make us weep for joy. Amen? What sinful man did for the Son of God should make us weep for sorrow, but what the Son of God did for sinful man should make us weep for joy. The result of the death 
of Jesus is that there is now a way back to God. That's why God sent Jesus. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. He sent Jesus to be the substitute so that the thing which separated us from God, our sin, could be forgiven and erased. Now that last verse, there's one more response. And it's by this centurion. This random character, the the centurion, all his job was was to oversee the execution. So there was an execution squad of four soldiers and this centurion was in charge. And so what he would have been doing the whole time is he would have been sitting back and observing, making sure everything went according to plan, ensuring that his victim was handled the right way and that he was dead and that they did their job. Look at what it says in verse 39. It says, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. When I saw that, I I found myself asking, what did the centurion see when he saw that in this way he breathed his last? What did he see that caused him to realize that this was the Son of God? Well, as I thought about it, I, I think first of all, he saw the way that Jesus loved his killers. He saw the way that Jesus loved his enemies. Romans 5, 6 says that God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus never reviled the people who were hurling insults at at him. He had every right to do exactly what they were daring him to do, to call down angels, to take him off the cross and destroy his enemies, to destroy the people that were putting him on that cross. But Jesus refused to save himself so that he could save the very people who had put him on the cross. I think the centurion saw that. I also think he saw the way that Jesus loved the Father. Jesus endured the suffering obediently. He didn't come to do his own will, he said, but to do the Father's will. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He showed his devotion and his willingness to follow the Father's way all the way to the end. I think the centurion also was startled by the supernatural darkness that covered the land and the earthquake that caused the curtain to tear in two as the fear of God was put into his heart. The centurion knew that this was no ordinary death. This was the saddest day in the history of the world. But Sunday's a coming. So we know the centurion's response, but what is your response this morning? to the Son of God, high and lifted up. Unbeliever, you who are not following Jesus, I'll say this, all of us have fallen into the camp of one of the three scoffers before. But are you still scoffing? Are you still scoffing? Are you still trying to hang on to your sin and stand with Jesus like Pilate was? Are you still foolishly indulging in sin, thinking that you will never have to give an account like the Roman soldiers going off into this sin and that relationship and whatever? Are you a church person pushing Jesus away because he's making too many demands on your life? Look upon the Son of God on the cross this morning. See the way that he died for you. See how the Father loved you by sending him to die in your place.
truly this man was the Son of God. Believers, followers of Jesus here this morning, Jesus' suffering is more than an example for you. Okay? Yes, following Jesus means we too must take up our cross. We must die to ourselves and face the same rejection from scoffers that Jesus did. But we can love our enemies the way that Jesus did. We can submit to the Father's will as Jesus did. Why? Because we know that Sundays are coming. We know that Sundays are coming. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 says that Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. For the joy, the eternal joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, the, the light momentary affliction, the temporary suffering. You see, Jesus is more than an example to follow. Jesus is our hope. Because God did not let his Holy One see corruption, he won't let you see it either. Because Jesus was forsaken on the cross, you will never be forsaken, no matter how dark your days may get. Because Jesus is alive, we will live forever. We have a hope beyond this world. I'm going to ask Kyle to come up uh, to the front, and uh, Kyle's going to start to play. And then um, what I want us to do for a time of response this morning is uh, he's going to play a song uh, that I think fits just perfectly with this morning's passage, How Deep the Father's Love. And as Kyle plays that song, I want you to feel free to worship in whatever way you want. If you want to stand and lift up your hands, if you want to just sit and pray at your seat, if you want to, to bow down on your knees, I would also encourage you, if you feel like you need to pray with somebody, if you feel like you need to talk to somebody about where you stand in your relationship with God right now, maybe you're a follower of Jesus and you've noticed yourself beginning to compromise like Pilate or like the scribes and the Pharisees or maybe uh, you've even just been directly disobeying Jesus and you've been striking him with blow after blow like the soldiers did and you need to seek forgiveness from Jesus and give your life back to him. Maybe you've never actually trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you need to do that for the first time today. Listen to me, no matter where you're at, I don't care who you are and where you've been and what you've done. The magnitude of Jesus' suffering on the cross, you know what that tells us? It tells us that he took every single ounce of God's wrath towards sin in your place. All of it. There is not a single person in this room who cannot come right now and be forgiven of all of their sins and be called a son or a daughter of God. So I would plead with you, come to Jesus this morning. Don't wait any longer or come back to him this morning. Don't wait 